What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Netflix's Reed Hastings, CEO of the stay-at-home mainstay, has got big plans. We want to get better than Disney in family entertainment. And that's going to take five or ten years. You know, they are very, very good at it. Inside the streaming giant, the man who made it, and what might be the next big thing in your queue. Prince Harry, Meghan Markle. How did it happen? Going to be epic entertainment. And a conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin, exclusive to this podcast. It's sort of a, a corporate version of The Hunger Games. That is scary, right? It's scary, but there's also a remarkable honesty. Plus trial troubles for AstraZeneca and a whole new meaning to the term work study with CNBC's John Ford. I know COVID adjustments are hard for everyone, but they're a special hell for the parents of school-aged children. It's Thursday, September 10th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, an update on the AstraZeneca story hitting COVID vaccine coverage. Earlier this week, the British company suspended late-stage coronavirus vaccine trials after a participant in the UK reported symptoms associated with a rare spinal inflammatory disorder called transverse myelitis. The World Health Organization had previously flagged AstraZeneca's vaccine as one of the most promising efforts in the race for an end to this pandemic. The CEO of AstraZeneca has now spoken out about the suspended trials, the ill patient, and what's next. Here's Becky. Meg Terrell joins us right now. She's got more on the latest there. And and Meg, the more we hear about this, maybe the more confusing it gets. Yeah, Becky, and it's sort of in the nature of the way the information is coming out. So Pascal Sorio, the CEO of AstraZeneca, was speaking at a pre-organized conference he'd been scheduled to participate in, uh, scheduled by Tortoise Media, uh, and saying there as part of this conference that they do believe, you know, if and when they're able to start their trial, and depending on that, that they will have uh, results available by the end of the year to submit for regulatory approval. So he believes if this is allowed to restart in in a timely way, uh, that they could still potentially have an approved vaccine by the end of this year or early 2021. Uh, Now, he also emphasized that they are awaiting an official diagnosis of this woman in the UK who developed this uh, neurological condition. That trial restart date, he said, is unknown, and that decision is in the hands of an independent safety committee. Now, Sorio this morning also trying to emphasize that it's not uncommon in vaccine trials Uh, to have a pause like this, given their size. He said, quote, it's very unusual for a vaccine trial to not stop. The difference is, he said, with other vaccine trials is the whole world is not watching them. And that's an important point, guys. Of course, the whole world is watching these trials. And so that's why when yesterday the news came out that Sorio had given more details on a private investor call arranged by J.P. Morgan than the company had been giving uh, publicly and in response to detailed questions from the media, uh, many eyebrows were raised. Um, Some of the details that we learned on that call 
uh, were that he said the diagnosis was not confirmed, uh, although they are neurological symptoms. And uh, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH yesterday, used the term transverse myelitis to describe it, although they say it isn't confirmed yet. Uh, a very important point that he also made on that call is that this person was on the vaccine arm of the trial. She did not receive placebo. So we still don't know if it was caused by the vaccine or not. Uh, but guys, this raising a lot of questions. Back over to you. Meg, how complicated is it to diagnose transverse myelitis? Uh, how, how, what kind of testing does it take? How long will it be before they can actually say yes it is or no it's not? That's a good question. I'm not sure how long that diagnosis takes. I think what the more complicated question is going to be is if they can prove it was not related to the vaccine. If the person started to have symptoms before she was vaccinated, you know, if, if they can prove that it is not related, then the trial will be able to restart sooner. Uh, but experts I've been talking with say, while they heard this and thought, oh, that's probably not related to the vaccine, it will be very difficult to disprove it. So that's what we're waiting for. Hey, Meg, do, do we know for certain that this is the only incidence with in this test or even maybe in, in a in one of the previous tests uh, for safety with the transverse myelitis that there were, you know, you see undercurrents around a, 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 that maybe that, that this was this the first one. Do you, can you confirm that for sure? And the only one? This is the only case that has been referred to as potential transverse myelitis that we have heard about so okay. far from the company. But there was a previous uh, case that turned out to be a multiple sclerosis diagnosis, which was deemed unrelated to the okay. vaccine, that did put it on pause back in July. Okay. So, but that was similar, but it was uh, attributed, because this can be MS, this could be MS as well. So, but, but it, it, it does get a little, you know, a little concerning, but it's all early and hopefully, it, you know, it, it's, it's not going to uh, be the case. Thanks, Meg. Are you going to be able to get through this or you want me to read, you want me to read this, this next thing? Well, on the Manhattan, real the, travail, the travails of New York City. Need, no, no, I'm, I'm are, happy. Are you going to be I'm happy to read it. To what about Europe? I'm happy to I'm happy Europe, to talk about it. I, I actually have I have views about it. Let me let me let me tell you what's going on. No, no. Uh, the number of empty rental apartments in in Manhattan nearly tripled compared to the la, uh, this time last year. This comes, of course, of uh, so many other New Yorkers uh, fled New York City. Prices have uh, collapsed. A new report from Douglas Elliman and Miller Samuel finding that there are more than fifteen thousand empty rental apartments in Manhattan in August. That's up from fifty six hundred. A year ago, the inventory of empty units is the largest ever recorded since data started being collected 14 years ago. Um, Joe, I'm still long New York. I'm still long New York City. And um, yes, I think that these numbers are, are bad. Uh, there's no way to, to spin them any other way. I think the question is, well, I think there's two questions. One is post Labor Day, like let's go out two or three months from now. What do those numbers look like? I still th I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a multi-year rebuild, but um, I think, I hope yeah, I that too. people will want to return to the big city. That's my, that's, that's my take, and uh, I'm sticking to it. And uh, maybe I'll even put my money where my mouth is at some point and buy some more real estate in New York City, because I actually believe that that's what that I was long term, that's, it'll be a good investment. Yep. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, after, I mean, I, too big to fail, I'm, stuff's still coming in. From that, I know. And, and then, you know, you got the billion stuff, you got the deal book, you got the New York. I mean, you, I, you've got. Uh, let me say this. Powder. I'm not, I, you I'm not the, selling you in New York. How about market, that? I'm not so, selling anything in New York. All right. 
that's a statement. That's a statement. But I think you need to double down in a big way and, and, and deploy some of that, that dry powder, Sorkin. I mean, it, you're, you're long New York. Let's go, man. I mean, there must be. I'm I mean, long there New York. I've actually that, I've that, thought that, about it. I will tell you, though, I'll say one I'll say one thing for those of us. And I don't know. I'm sure there's other people in the audience who do this, too. I often look at real estate uh, websites just as a sort of I don't know if it's a hobby or a, I don't know what I'm doing. But the prices actually haven't come down as, as you from, think. So from, like, I want to see what happens yeah, what in the next six and over the next six months to a year. We'll see. Right. Yeah, I, I think the next six We've, months are probably key, Andrew, too. From people I've spoken with about that, they say, look, they have prices kind of haven't come down, but that's because there haven't been a lot of sales yet. So everybody's in this wait right. and see. It's a game of chicken being played between buyers and sellers right now. Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Salesforce, and some other tech companies in the spotlight over policies giving extra time off to parents trying to manage with kids, remote and hybrid schools, all taking place around the country. Some employees without kids say it's unfair. And uh, John Fort is weighing in on uh, this tech benefit this morning. John. Hey, well, Andrew, let me tell you, uh, companies like Facebook and Salesforce that are giving extra time off just to parents to deal with remote learning have exactly the right idea. I mean, in, in many cases where schools are starting with either all remote or, or hybrid schedules, anything else would be totally unworkable. I know COVID adjustments are hard for everyone, but they're a special hell for the parents of school-aged children. I mean, imagine ha having a wonderful, precious, needy creature interrupting you constantly for help with long division or more descriptive adjectives or my computer won't work. And yes, a lot of this falls specifically on working mothers. Tech companies are known for their perks, generous wellness benefits, free food, but this targeted time off just for parents might be the best one, not just for the workers, but for society. Okay, John, so why does anyone have a problem with this? Oh, well, Andrew, I mean, on the other hand, diversity is big right now, right? So seeing things from someone else's point of view. So it's funny how tech executives who tend to be in the married with kids demographic decide to target a COVID benefit just to people with kids. I mean, look, I, I get it that parents have it especially tough. So we got to make some adjustments. You know who else has it tough? People with aging parents who aren't sick or in nursing homes, people with out-of-work siblings. Single, childless people whose COVID isolation has them staring down depression. Parents aren't the only ones who could use a break. Time is money, people. So when companies give parents more time, they're actually giving them more money. So how about this, Silicon Valley? Give parents extra time to deal with their kids, but give everyone else the choice between some mental health or family time off or a bonus equivalent to that time. It's only fair, guys. John, I, I, I actually, I'm trying to figure out which sides persuaded me. I mean, I, I, I was originally sort of offended by the idea that any, frankly, single person, you know, if, if single people out there started screaming about maternity leave, you know, I, I think we, there'd be, you know, people's hair would be on fire. And that, to me, in this moment, that's sort of the equivalent. At some point, it's, something's got to give. And, and I just don't know, you know, where, where the line is, because... At some point, if you said you want to do it for parents and, and, and grandparents, and, and I accept that. I actually think we should try to, to the extent you can have empathy and, and do that. But the, the question is, you where is it. the line? Do you want to come down on that? Well, it's, it's that empathy thing that you said, and, Andrew. And I think it's, it's easy for you to see 
for us to see the struggle of somebody who's having a similar struggle to ours. I mean, sure, tech executives, a lot of them are, are, are maybe directly struggling. They have help uh, at home, but, but they have friends in the same demographic who are having trouble with kids. It, it might be harder to see the struggles of somebody who's feeling especially isolated, the, the people who take on the extra work when someone else has to be out for a period of time. And I think during this time, uh, even some companies are using uh, technology to check in on employees, these pulse checks, to really hear how they're doing. You got to look at that data and really think outside of our usual boxes to understand how people are doing. Because look, th this pandemic really is affecting everybody. This is one where I thought you were having a harder time potentially arguing the other side of this, because really, I thought a lot of these companies were pretty generous when it came to uh, taking any sort of leave for another family member, you know, family care, particularly a, a parent or a sibling or somebody that you had there. And the impression that I got, and maybe it's the wrong impression, but the impression I've gotten from the coverage has been this is the people who are frustrated that they have to work more. But a lot of the perks that were there at these companies before, like all-time food, food all the time if you were there 24 hours, or the idea of beer afterwards or different <laughs> things, those are the type of perks that parents weren't taking part in beforehand either. So yeah. you know, different perks for different times. I, I did think about that, but then I thought, oh, wait a second. A lot of these places also have like child care on site uh, for people. So that there was a balance in those benefits, I think, uh, to, to begin with. But I do think that I, I hear the argument uh, for, from some people who are saying, yeah, a lot of these COVID-related extra benefits that you're rolling out do specifically target people who are in a different demographic from me. So, uh, yes, I, I get it that, that these uh, benefits for parents are important. I'm a parent. I can certainly feel it. But I also understand the aspect of feeling left out when, you know, hey, I got some problems over here, too. What are the companies doing? Are they actually responding by trying to make sure everybody's getting, take, getting taken care of? You know, I don't think we've seen the, the full reverberations from this. There was a story just last week in the New York Times that was kind of laying out uh, some of the, the blowback that various companies were facing. But I do think they're assessing. I, I was speaking to, uh, in one of our CNBC at work events, the head of the Society of Human Resource Management and a couple of chief human resource officers who were saying they are getting this data in from employees where people initially, there was a surge. Everybody was just glad to still be employed. Companies were glad to be operating through this uh, pandemic. There's all this productivity, but then people kind of hit a wall. And people are saying, hey, I can't go on like this in perpetuity. you got to help me out here. John, thank you. Really thoughtful and gives us stuff to think about. We'll see you soon. Next on Squawk Pod, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings on pandemic streaming and why he wants to get back to the office. Is there nothing? There's got to be something in your life that's a little bit better. I would say there's nothing good about the 10-person Zoom call that I wouldn't rather uh, do in person. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod, taking you behind the sounds of Squawk Box on CNBC. 
and today we have a special interview with Reed Hastings of Netflix. Yes, Netflix, pandemic BFF to many, staying at home. Founded more than 20 years ago as a mail-in movie rental company, it's now a tech giant with about 200 million users around the globe. And co-founder and longtime CEO Reed Hastings is letting us into the way the streaming giant works in a new business book called No Rules Rules. Okay, so... What are we doing? I caught up Reed with Hastings. Andrew Ross Sorkin. The remarkable thing about Reed Hastings is that he is a true entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He had actually started a company long before he started Netflix. So this was his encore performance of sorts. And when he started Netflix, it was a DVD by mail business to compete directly against Blockbuster. In fact, um, you know, Blockbuster probably should have bought the company and ended up turning him down. Uh, when they could have bought it for $50 million. But he has really uh, overseen this transformation of Netflix from a DVD business to this juggernaut that basically is the new Hollywood. You know, he, he is the new king of Hollywood. So much of what we hear about Netflix is about the culture of the company. And you're saying he's bridging two, two worlds, an old-fashioned studio boss and all of the amazing things that technology innovation can do for us. But we hear so much about what makes Netflix Netflix. What do you know about the culture there? It's a very, 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 very unique culture. And he describes it so well in this book, uh, No Rules Rule, which is to say that, and we should say there are some rules, um, but it's, it's a very uh, flat culture. It's a very somewhat egalitarian culture, and yet it's somewhat cutthroat. Um, you know, one of the things that's a pivotal piece of this culture is this idea of the keeper test, uh, which his co-author describes as sort of a, a corporate version of the Hunger Games. The keeper test is, is effectively says, if you're the boss, you're supposed to look at the employees that you oversee, and think to yourself, would I fight to keep them? And if you wouldn't fight to keep them, you should let them go. And this isn't in the context of whether they're about to leave or not, or whether they have a competing job offer. This is literally in the context of every day. So if there's a moment at which you say, you know what, I actually probably wouldn't fight for this person. You're supposed to let them go. That is scary for any employee to think about that, right? It makes you... Except... It's scary, but there's also a remarkable honesty about it. And there's a candor that is encouraged inside of Netflix and a recognition that it may not work out for everybody. Uh, You know, he's not pretending uh, to be a family um, where you have lifetime employment at all. And they have very, very generous benefits on the way out, on purpose, for this very purpose, so that people can speak openly and candidly. Andrew's conversation with the Netflix CEO was recorded remotely. And they start with the keeper test. That's a pretty high bar. It is. You know, we really model ourselves on professional sports. And if you're going to win the championship, you got to have incredible talent in every position. And that's how we think about it. And we encourage people to focus on who of your employees would you fight hard to keep if they were going to another company. And those are the ones we want to hold on to. I don't know if you uh, read your own interview, an article uh, that Maureen Dowd 
uh, did over the weekend. Uh, but in it, she quotes Janice Min. And uh, Janice said that Netflix has what she called a culture of arrogance and fear. And at one point said, uh, now, only now, are you not too big to hate? What did you think of that? Well, she was talking about the Hollywood perspective of our competitors uh, against us as an upstart. And so um, it's natural for the new kid in town, that's Netflix, you know, to be uh, threatening to the Viacoms, to the Disneys, to the Foxes of the world. You've done a number of interviews. And at one point uh, you, were, you were asked about how companies are going to think about your book. And you said, you know, the book is written for smaller companies, for mid-sized companies, not necessarily for the giants, the Warner Medias of the world who may, who may uh, scoff at it or, or read it, but, but not necessarily take it seriously. Why does it not work or does it for big companies? Well, culture, whether that's national culture or a large company's culture, is embedded in all of the people who have learned how to succeed in that company. And that's very slow to change. So uh, we think about it as new creative companies are going to get formed over the next decade. And hopefully they will have a chance to read things like No Rules Rules. And they have the potential then to really think about things differently. So existing firms can adapt some. But it takes an intense effort. You've gone from being a small startup to a big giant yourself and a global one at that. And how difficult do you think it is? And do you think that the culture that you had in the beginning is still the same? Or does it have to change? Our culture is much better than it was 20 years ago. Um, we've continued to get more honest, more thoughtful, more creative. We have better tools internally. We're focused on inclusion, all kinds of dimensions. So our culture gets better as we get bigger. You know, the last time we spoke, um, you announced a personal donation uh, to the HBCUs. And since then, your, your company's allocated now $100 million in minority-owned financial uh, institutions. What do you think the role of corporations should be in equality and injustice? And, and how should CEOs think about that? Is that a moral duty? Is that an economic duty? Does it, is there a duty to the shareholder involved in this? You know, I think there's a broad duty to be thoughtful in the society in which you operate. And so Costco, as an example, uh, also made a deposit in black banks, um, uh, as we did, and many others are doing that. So um, these are things that every corporation can do to put one or two percent of assets in black banks that will make a real difference in the amount of capital invested to close the wealth gap because it's from the wealth gap between black families and white families that the power gap comes from. So uh, I commend uh, Costco for uh, doing that. In, in the larger picture though, and, and you know, uh, both Silicon Valley and now a lot of Hollywood companies, including your own, uh, have, have, have opened their books, if you will, in terms of what diversity looks like inside the company. What do you make of quotas or goals even? You know, our goals are really to be more diverse, more reflective um, of the societies in which we operate. So if you look at our top 20 executives now, we're half women, half men, and 25% leaders of color. So we've made some real progress in the last few years, and we continue to work on it to tell stories that reflect our audiences. 
But but in terms of how people think about it, you know, inside lots of firms, people say, you know, should we actually set a goal? Uh, NBC Universal, my parent company, has now a 50% goal, um, and that's something that um, you know is is going to get hardwired into the culture. Are you a, a, fa- a fan of goals? Does Netflix have a goal? You know, our goal is to do better every year in many dimensions. We don't tend to set goals, you know, say around a membership or around other things. We tend to just kind of try to focus on getting better on a continuous basis. Okay, a little bit of an inside culture question. I saw in the Wall Street Journal that you said nothing good has come of the pandemic when it comes to working from home. Uh, Elaborate on that idea. Is there nothing? There's got to be something in your life that's a little bit better. Well, the reference was to uh, not, you know, the the 100% work from home model and no uh, in-person meetings. Um, And so I think it's really valuable and important and useful to have in-person meetings. And I miss that. So uh, I would say there's nothing good about the 10-person Zoom call that I wouldn't rather uh, do in person. But in the future, in a post-pandemic world, how many days do you think you'll be in the office? Well, I've always worked from home uh, on nights and weekends. So we're really talking about, you know, is it the only modality you have or is it partial? And I think it'll be partial where there'll be some working from home and there'll be some uh, group meetings together. You said you were surprised uh, about the success of Disney Plus reaching 60 million subscribers as quickly as they did. What what did you think the number would be? Oh, maybe 20 million at best. Um, you know, they've uh, most companies have a hard time executing on something as radical as, you know, let's go direct to consumer over the Internet. Um, and they've done a remarkable job growing to over 60 million in less than 12 months. You know, and it took us like 12 or 13 years to get there. Um, so uh, they're, you know, very focused, obviously, on uh, direct-to-consumer, um, but so are we. And I think, uh, you know, we love the challenge and we want to bring the challenge to them. We want to get better than Disney in family entertainment. And that's going to take five or 10 years. You know, they are very, very good at it. Um, But, you know, we're very focused and we continue to learn new things. What's the lesson in their growth? Is there something, I mean, given that you've been surprised by it, is there something you've noticed and said, hmm, that's pretty interesting. We should try that. Well, they've had uh, lots of incredible content and they've been very aggressive about putting that content uh, onto the Disney Plus service. And then I think it's the power of a great brand like Disney has really carried the day. So if anything, it's emphasized how important it is for us to invest in the Netflix brand and what it represents. Great series, great films that you can relax with anytime. Let me let me ask you a different question about one of your other competitors, which is HBO Max. Uh, A number of critics have said they, they sort of stubbed their toe on their on the way out of the gate. Do you agree with that? Well, depending on how you read the numbers, they got three or four million people on uh, HBO uh, Max. Um, So compared to Disney, 60, that's a a pretty small number. So I think they've got a ways to go. Um, But, you know, they've been a legendary provider of uh, great entertainment for a very long time. So I certainly wouldn't count them out. You long or short Quibi at this point? You know, TikTok has done a phenomenal job on uh, short form entertainment. 
So it shows there's always room for innovation, and I would never count anybody out. Uh, it's a wide open market and lots of new surprises coming. Uh, given that you just mentioned TikTok, um, there is a, a real question about the future of TikTok, but more importantly, the future of the relationship between the United States and China, uh, a market that you've long talked about trying to get in. And I'm, I'm curious what you think the implications of what's happening with TikTok may or may not be on your ability, Netflix's ability to enter that market in the future. Well, we got turned down uh, by the Chinese government uh, several years ago, and we have not been spending any time on China in the last couple of years. Uh, there's so much opportunity for us in Asia, the rest of Asia, uh, India in particular, Korea, Japan, Indonesia, and then all through Europe and Latin America. So we're, we're very focused on that. It's a pity from a long-term perspective of the U.S. and Chinese disengagement, um, but there's nothing we can do about that. And instead, we're focusing on uh, entertaining everybody else. Um, you know, a topic I don't think we've ever had a real chance to talk about. You stepped down about a year now, maybe a little over that, uh, from the board of Facebook. Why did you step down? Was that the conflict over, over the video business that they're going into, or is it the politics of what was happening inside Facebook? Well, I'd been on the board for many years, um, and so I just felt it was time. Uh, we both compete for a lot of the same employees, and that's the, the primary competition. Um, so it felt like it was probably good for me to, to step down. Now that you have a, a, a seat on the outside of the ring, do you have a view about the role of social media and the role of Facebook when it comes to the elections and and, and some of the anxiety around that right now? Well, I know that uh, Cheryl and Mark take their responsibilities very seriously. Um, it's clearly a difficult situation. Also uh, at Twitter, at YouTube, you know, these are new technologies and, you know, new technologies have uh, some negatives and some positives. And the trick is to constantly be learning how to minimize the negatives and increase the positives. Curious how much you, you follow the markets. Netflix, of course, is part of the quote-unquote fang stocks, which have been on a remarkable run. But what do, you, what do you think when you look at the markets and the valuations of these companies, including your own? You know, I've really focused very little on the things I can't control, uh, such as the markets, and focus almost entirely on uh, our employees, our customers, our series, our films, um, because that's, a, again, an area I can have some impact right. Do you buy stocks, by the way? Index fund investor for at least a decade. That's it. So no Tesla so, for you. Well, there's Netflix and then passive. So I'm, I'm very barbell. Are you concerned about the power of an Apple or a Google? And I, I ask because clearly from a payments perspective, you made the hard decision. I don't know how hard it was uh, to effectively take the payments outside of, uh, of Apple Pay and outside of the the, the app shell, if you will. Subscription, um, it's a little easier time. Uh, subscription services in general are multi-platform and not as subject to being a single app purchase. So app stores in general have less power over subscription services such as Spotify, Netflix, and others. Um, but when you look at the platforms and the growth of um, Android, you know, which has, I'm ballparking it, but 80% share globally, and then Apple has 80% plus share in the U.S. You know, they're interesting contrasts, but I would say, 
you know, those two firms compete so aggressively against each other, Apple and Google at this point, that there's a lot of competition in the marketplace. Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, how did it happen? Going to be epic entertainment. Um, so excited about uh, that deal. Um, well, look, you know, they're smart. They were shopping it around across, you know, all of the major companies. And I think we really put together the best uh, complete package. And, you know, we're going to do a, a wide range of entertainment with them. I can't tell you any more than that about it at this point, but um, I think it'll be some of the, the most exciting, most viewed content next year. And will Meghan Markle be acting in any of these productions? You know, the real focus for them is on being producers and on uh, building that production uh, capacity. Um, so uh, that's the, the key thing is, you know, they've uh, developed a, a great eye for story and we'll be working with them on that basis. When you made Ted Sarandos your co-CEO, you said you're in for another 10 years. You're 59 now. That means you're in till you're 69, I think. That's it. Or more. I, you know, there's, it was at least 10 years was the quote. At least 10 years. Um, I love the work. It's so satisfying. I love traveling for Netflix and, you know, being around the world. Uh, so it's a great partnership with Ted. We've been together for more than 20 years um, so couldn't be more excited. We got a big opportunity to grow our service around the world. There's so many homes that are enjoying Netflix, but there's so many more homes that are not yet enjoying Netflix. And we want to be available to everyone. Okay, final, final question. It's really a creative question, though. Do you think a lot of shows are going to work COVID into the storyline? And should they? I think a few shows will do it only, um, and we'll see. It may be that people will be tired of it at first, and it will only be later. But, you know, you never say never, and we'll try many things. Reed, we really appreciate you joining us. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so very, very much. Thank you so much. Hey, Andrew, I, I keep going around in my head about the, the keeper rule. Uh, tell me more about that, because I'm a little nervous trying to figure out if any of us pass that rule. The key, the keep, <laughs> the keeper rule is. It all depends on who gets to decide, is, right? It's, is literally, it's, it's literally, do you want to keep the employee or not? And if you don't want to keep them for whatever reason, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't kill yourself to keep them, you should get rid of them. That's pretty much the rule. So it's the important decision is who gets to be the decider, right? Yes, you. Yeah, like, the decider my, my, matters a lot. The, being the boss matters. Andrew, my, 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 my favorite thing is is. Reed is obviously he's got a lot of confidence. That's why he is where he is. But you said, you know, you're getting really, really big. And, and how's the culture changing? He goes, it's unbelievable. But the bigger we get, the better and better our culture just gets. It's unreal. Anyway, I have thought about, you know, there are times where, you know, how you go back and forth between cable and, and Netflix and it's a pain sort of get, getting the control and everything. Sometimes yeah. I've, I've found that I've just yeah. left it on Netflix. I've just net left it there. And it's me like, too. oh, my I God, I don't want to be. I don't want to do finally that. Figured out how to slip I back love and cable. Forth. I always go back to cable. That is a bold prediction to think that you can be bigger than Disney to the children's market sometime in the next five to ten years. I mean, you think about the decades and decades and decades that Disney has been building up that, that library, that catalog, those numbers of characters. I mean, that's that one I have a hard time kind of understanding. I thought the, I can see it as the a goal. two things I thought were fascinating, this idea that they're going to invest so much in family entertainment 
and what that's going to mean. And also in the brand, because I've historically asked Reed about the brand before. And, you know, Netflix right now represents a lot of things to a lot of people. And I don't know if they've focused so much on what Netflix as a brand means. So I think you're going to start to see a lot more in terms of how they promote the company and the overall brand as well. Really interesting stuff, Andrew. Great job. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. Special thanks to our Squawk colleague, Jacqueline Corba, for her work on this episode. And our hardworking editor is John Lazration. Please subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.